First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. My God, rescue me from my enemies, for they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this, God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God. Out loud in the streets, you've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. Well, before we jump into the Word this morning, I want to just invite all of you this Saturday morning uh, to our Disciple Making Summit. You know, one of our core convictions uh, as a church family is that every disciple is a disciple maker. Uh, that God has not given the task of making disciples just to pastors or to missionaries, but he has given that task uh, to all of us, to his church. And this Saturday is a great opportunity for all of us uh, to be equipped in that important task that God uh, has given us to make disciples. And, and so just want to encourage you, if your schedule allows uh, to be there, we're going to start in here at 8.30 uh, this Saturday morning. We'll have you out uh, by uh, lunchtime. Uh, breakfast is included. We're also giving away this uh, helpful little book called One to One Bible Reading. Now, that's one of the best things we can do uh, in terms of discipling someone else. It's very simple, just to read the Bible with them, to read the Bible together and to talk about uh, what it means. And we're giving this away free to the first 125 or so uh, who register. Uh, There's some information on the screens about how to sign up for this weekend and some more information in your worship folder as well. Uh, But I'm looking forward to it. I hope uh, to see you there this this Saturday morning. Uh, And so with that, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, uh, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25? Uh, I appreciate uh, so much um, Nathan Walters and Aaron Still uh, did such an excellent uh, job breaking down the Word of God for us the past two weekends. I'm excited to jump back into this series today. Uh, This series is called Fugitive Faith. Because during this time in David's life, he is running for his life from King Saul, very much like a fugitive. And yet along the way, God is strengthening his faith. Uh, He has a lot that he is teaching David. And I believe God wants to teach us a lot today as well as we run along with David in chapter 25 of this story. Let's start out by reading the first 13 verses together. First uh, Samuel 25, starting in verse 1. And the word of God says this, Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, And peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. 
Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, and they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to the men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with his supplies. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today as we study this word that you have given us, this story, that, Father, you would teach us from it, uh, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth that it contains, that your Holy Spirit, Father, not only speak to our minds, but to our hearts, that you might transform us, that we might trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's walk through this story together, and then there are a few lessons for us here that I believe the Lord wants us to see today. Uh, you know, even though only one verse is given to it, what happens in verse 1 with the death of Samuel is pretty huge. This is the end of an era for God's people. Samuel had been God's prophet to God's people from the time that he was a little boy all the way until the time that he was an old man. Uh, He had anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. He was an important character. He was not a perfect man, mind you. He did not have perfect children. He did not live a perfect life, but he lived a faithful life. He lived a faithful life from the beginning to the end, and it's the kind of life that by God's grace we should all aspire to live. And after that note about Samuel in verse 1, in verse 2, the scene shifts back to what's going on with David. And we're introduced to this rich man that David is about to have an encounter with. As one person pointed out, it is interesting that we first read about all of the stuff that this rich man had before we're even given his name. And that's really fitting because his life was really all about his stuff. And so it's right that we learn about his stuff before we even learn his name. We find out that he has 3,000 sheep. He has 1,000 goats. He's a wealthy, wealthy man. His home would have been featured on a show, Cribs Israeli Edition, if they had it back then. Uh, In verse 2, we find out his name, and his name is Nabal. Uh, Later on, we're told that Nabal literally means a fool. I really don't think that Nabal's mother, or any mother for that matter, would name their child Fool, right? You know, would you like to come meet my little fool? He's right here. I really don't think that that would happen, but I believe that this was his nickname, maybe a variation on his name, but it is what he had been come to be known by. And it was fitting because he was a fool. And it's not just the narrator who says so. Everybody in this story says so. His wife says so. His servants say so. Everybody who knows him says that. In verse 3, it also says that he was an evil man, that he was a harsh man. And yet somehow he was married to this woman named Abigail that verse 3 says was a woman of good understanding, of beautiful appearance, 
that she was uh, beautiful both inside and out. And so this marriage between Nabal and Abigail was what you would call a total mismatch. This is one of those marriages where people wonder, how did she end up with him? Now, I'm afraid people think that when they see Megan with me. They think she must have had pity on that poor bald man. That's it. That's and I thank the Lord that, that she did. We find out, though, in the next few verses that David and his 600 men had been helping Nabal. They had been protecting his flock so that none of his sheep were taken. And now it had come time for sheep shearing time, which was a, a festive time. And so David, who by this time could probably use a good meal for himself and for his men, sends 10 of his men to Nabal's house to ask for a token of appreciation. And really, it was compensation that should have been rightfully theirs for the service that they had provided. David, who is the king-to-be, of course, could have come in a very demanding way, but instead he comes very graciously. He tells his men to go and bless Nabal's home first, and then to request this food. But in verse 10, Nabal does not only say no, uh, Nabal insults David, the anointed king of Israel. He basically said, David who? He acts like he doesn't even know who David was, which of course everyone in Israel knew who David was, but Nabal did not want to give him any of his stuff. And it is not hard to figure out what the God is in Nabal's life. You can see it there in his response in verse 11. He says, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men whom I do not know where they are from? You see, in Nabal's mind and his imagination, his stuff was mine, mine, mine. And he wasn't going to give it to anybody else. He's like many people today who have the same kind of heart, who forget that all that they have comes from the Lord God. And so David's men are rebuffed, and they turn around, and they go back, and they tell David what Nabal had said. And, they, uh, and David's response to this was swift, and really can be summed up with the word sword. The, the word sword shows up three times in verse 13 alone. David basically said, everybody get your sword. He leaves 200 men there to guard the supplies, and he rides off with an army of 400 men riding straight for Nabal's house. And I can assure you, he wasn't going there to try to sell him some Tupperware. And Nabal's servants are aware of that as well. They know that something bad is about to go down. And so one of them goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and ask for help. Let's pick up the story there in verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
And so it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. And so what this servant says to Abigail really backs up what David's servants had said earlier, that they really were good to Nabal's men. He says they were like a wall of protection around us, around our flock. And so really we should have given them something. But this servant explains to Abigail how Nabal rebuffed them, how he reviled them. And he says to her, listen, something bad is about to go down unless you do something. And you have to do something because nobody can even talk to your husband. And Abigail, thankfully, does do something. She moves into action. She gets her catering department together. They began to whip up a to-go meal for David's men, and she sends it off uh, on uh, several donkeys ahead to kind kind of grease the skids a little bit to prepare for her arrival. It reminds me of the story of Jacob and Esau, what Jacob did. When he was about to meet his brother Esau, how he sent load after load of goods to his brother to prepare the way for his arrival. That's what Abigail does here. And then she gets on a donkey herself and she goes to meet David. And then we're kind of let in on what David has been saying to his men. And he is saying to his men, I cannot believe that after all the good we did to this man that this is how he treated us. He has returned evil for good. And then he takes a vow. He says, uh, he takes a vow and takes an oath and says, I will kill every man in Nabal's house before the morning light. Now, thankfully, he did not keep that vow because that is a vow that he should never have made. But suffice it to say, David is hot under the collar at this point in time. And all of this just heightens the suspense and the tension of this meeting between Abigail and David. So let's pick up the story there in verse 23. It says, Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling." And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember 
your maidservant. It probably was not every day that David and his men uh, ran into a woman bowing down in front of their army. But that's what happened on this day, and it stopped David's army in their tracks. At first, Abigail is just trying to calm David down. She says, David, on on me. If, If anybody's done anything wrong, take it out on me, which, of course, she knows he would not do. And then she distances herself from her husband Nabal. She doesn't try to defend him at all because he really could not be defended. And she said his name means fool, and that's what he is. As one person put it, Abigail was not the last woman to think that her husband was an idiot. But in this case, she was right in that assessment. That is the Lord's assessment of this man. He was a fool in every sense of the word. And in the Bible, one who is a fool is a godless individual. We'll come back and look more closely at the rest of Abigail's speech in a few minutes. Because what she says here is really the most important part of this chapter. But basically, she tells David, the Lord will take care of Nabal. The Lord is, is holding you back right now from doing something that you should not do, about taking matters into your own hand. But the Lord will do as he has promised to do for you. And when you do become king, she said, I don't want you to have any regrets because you did something like this and you shed innocent blood that you should not have shed. And then in verse 32, David responds to her speech. And this is what he said to her. David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you've kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. And so David praises God and thanks God for sending Abigail because he recognizes that he was about to do the wrong thing and that what she was speaking to him was the right thing. And so in verse 35, he tells her to go in peace. And in this case, this is more than just a goodbye. Uh, He is promising her and pledging her that she could go in peace, that her house was safe, that he and his men would seek to do no harm to her or to her husband Nabal. And so Abigail does go home in peace. For the time being, it seemed that she had saved the life of her husband. But look what happens next in verse 36. Now, Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And so it was in the morning, When the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. And then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So Nabal said that he didn't have enough food to share with anybody else, but apparently he had plenty to share with himself. Uh, He throws a feast for himself with plenty of food and drink to go around. And when, Nabal, when Abigail gets home, Nabal is drunk, so drunk, in fact, that she could not even tell him what happened until the next day. And, and Nabal here just reminds me of the story that Jesus told of the rich fool who said, I'm going to keep building bigger and bigger barns for myself. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. 
And Jesus said of this man in the story, what a fool. He didn't know that that very night his soul would be demanded of him. Well, for Nabal, it wasn't that very night, but the next morning his downfall began because the following morning, about the time that Nabal was putting his Pop-Tart in the toaster, Abigail comes into the kitchen and begins to tell him about everything that happened the day before and how he and his men came this close to losing their lives. And when he hears that, uh, his heart becomes like a stone, the text says. Many scholars believe that he either had a heart attack or a stroke. And then verse 38 says that 10 days later the Lord struck him and he died. And the text is very clear on this point. Nabal did not die of natural causes. This was God's judgment upon this man because of his sin. And it was just like Abigail had told David. He did not need to do anything. The Lord would fight his battles for him. Look with me at verse 39. Let's read to the end of the chapter. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant, to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is from Galim. So David hears about what happens to Nabal. He praises God that the Lord has kept him back from doing this evil thing. That God has returned Nabal's wickedness upon his own head. And then this story ends with a a sweet little marriage proposal. As David sends his servants to Abigail, Abigail was not single for long. And uh, he requests her hand in marriage. She accepts and she begins to make her way towards David to become his wife. Now we also learn in this passage that David already had another wife, Ahinoam, who he probably had married prior to Abigail. And then of course was his wife Michael, Saul's daughter who had helped him escape from her father earlier in this story. But Saul, who was trying to kill David every day of his life at this point, decided he really didn't want David to be a part of his own family, to be his son-in-law. And so in order to irk David, he took Michael away from David and gave her to another man. And even so, at this point in the story, David has two wives. Later in the story, he's going to go and get Michael back. He's also going to add a few more wives, and he's going to add some other concubines. And even though the narrator doesn't say anything about David's polygamy, we need to remember that this was never God's plan for marriage. And by the end of David's story, as many of you know, his propensity for taking wives, including one in particular that belonged to another man, would end up being his spiritual downfall. And so with this story in our minds and in our hearts, with the time we have left before we go to the Lord's table, I want to point out three life lessons that I believe the Lord would have us learn from this story. First off, and this one should be pretty evident to all of us, if godly people, if godly people try to fight their own battles, 
they'll set out to do some very ungodly things. And David in this story is a prime example of that. Clearly, he was trying to fight his own battles instead of relying on the Lord. When David's men come back and tell him what Nabal had said, his blood just starts boiling. And I don't even think David stopped to think about what he should do. The text doesn't say that he ever stopped to ask God what he should do. He just said, it is time to go to war. It is time to take this rich rich little weasel out. And so he gets his army together and they set off riding. And if Abigail had not stopped him, even David's own words testify to the fact that he was going to wipe out every man in Nabal's household. And what is so striking about all of this is the contrast between David in this chapter, in chapter 25, and David in the last chapter, in chapter 24. Because in chapter 24, David, uh, who is being hunted down by Saul every day of his life, uh, ends up in a situation where Saul, who needs to go to the little boy's room, ends up doing that in a cave where David and his men are hiding. And so David's men say, this is your chance. God has given you your enemy on a silver platter. You just need to rise up and kill him right now. That's what his men tell him to do. But David knows better. David knows he cannot do that. He just cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and he waits until Saul goes out of the cave and he holds up the piece of the robe and he says, Saul, you see right here, the proof is in my hand. I could have killed you right now, but I didn't. For I would not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. And so in the chapter right before this, David shows incredible mercy to the very man who is hunting him down and trying to kill him. And yet in the very next chapter, just a little bit after this, when he gets offended by some rich snob who won't give him any food, he is ready to wipe out this man and to wipe out every other man in his house. And it is just a powerful reminder to us that sometimes we get it And sometimes we don't. And even the godliest person that you know is one bad decision away from some really ungodly behavior. And that is why we need to stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. I I tried to think this week about why David, why, why did he not transfer what he had learned about mercy in the cave to this situation with Nabal. What was it about this situation that caused David to act so differently? I think what fired David up so much in this case was that his pride had been offended. David was okay with danger, but he was not okay with being dissed. And sometimes we are like that. Some, some of us, maybe you can handle somebody attacking you, just outright opposing you, but let somebody disrespect you. Let somebody demean you, and then it is on like Donkey Kong. You cannot take it if somebody does that to you. I think for David, part of it had to do with who Nabal was. I think Nabal was probably had all the characteristics of the kind of man that David did not respect in the slightest. He was a rich snob, he was a glutton, he was a drunk, he was ungiving, uncaring, he was harsh. Maybe there's somebody like that in your life. You can just take almost anything from anybody, but there's this one particularly obnoxious person in your life, 
And you even say, you know, they just have a way of bringing out the worst in me. But we need to remember what Jesus said. Nobody else can make us act in a certain way. When ugliness comes out of us, it's because it was already inside of us. The situation just revealed it. It couldn't come out unless it was already inside. And I think what David does here also just reminds me of how forgetful we can be about how the Lord has taken care of every situation in our life leading up to this. You know, by this time, God has already rescued David from a lion and a bear and a giant Philistine named Goliath. Twelve times already in this story, he has protected David from King Saul. Why did David think that God cannot handle one little rich jerk? But David felt like he needed to handle this particular situation on his own. He needed to take care of this one for God. And I think very often we can be guilty of the same thing. God has rescued us time and time and time again. He has been faithful to us. And yet when we get in a situation and we start to think like this, we start to think, now I've got to take care of this situation my way. Well then... Just like David, we are probably on our way to doing something very, very ungodly. Here's a second life lesson for us to see here. And this lesson should cause us to praise God and to thank God. God in his providence often restrains his people from doing ungodly things. Throughout David's story, we see God's providence at work. But in this particular part of his story, we see God's providence restraining David from doing what he intended to do. Four times in this story, it speaks about how God restrained David. In verse 26, it shows up when Abigail says that. Abigail says to him, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself. So Abigail says that to him. Abigail boldly says, right now the Lord is trying to hold you back. That's why he sent me to you. And then in David's response to her, he says the same thing in verse 33 and verse 34. You have restrained me. The Lord has used you to restrain me. And then if you look in verse 39, after Nabal's death, David gives praise to the Lord for the very same thing. He says, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. This is a major theme in this story that God used Abigail to keep David back from sin. And you know, for every child of God in this room, as we look back over our lives, we need to acknowledge that the same thing has happened probably more often than we even realize. Because here is the truth. You know, we thank God for forgiving our sins, and we should, But we should also thank God for the sins that he has kept us from doing in the first place. And how many times has the Lord done that in your life? How many times has the Lord intervened in your life, sent someone to stop you, someone to counsel you, someone to keep you back from the evil that you plan to do? And you know what's particularly instructive in this story is how the Lord does that. How he uses this woman of God, Abigail, to stop David from doing what he planned to do. It's a reminder that we all need the church. 
that we all need brothers and sisters in the family of God. Yes, sometimes to encourage us and build us up, but also, church, sometimes to rebuke us, sometimes to correct us. Sometimes we need somebody in our life who loves us enough to say, friend, I love you, but what you're about to do is not godly. But if we disconnect ourselves from the people of God, how many times have Christians said, well, you know, I prayed about this and I just think it's what I need to do and I'm just going to do it. And yet we don't listen to the counsel of God's word and God's people. And when we do that, when we isolate ourselves from the family of God that we need, bad things are about to happen. Of course, it's also important not just that we hear that counsel, but that we really receive it, that we listen to it. You know, that's the biggest difference between Nabal and David in this story. David is willing to listen to Abigail's counsel. He hears what she says, and he stops. And he turns around, and he goes back home. But Nabal, do you remember what Nabal's servant said to Abigail about him? She said, he said, the reason I'm talking to you is because nobody can talk to that guy. He's such a scoundrel, nobody can talk to him. In other words, he won't listen to anybody. Wow, you do not want to be that kind of person. You don't want to be the kind of person that other people say, oh, him, her, you can't talk to them. They won't listen to you. They won't listen to anything they have to say. And some people wear that almost like it's a badge of honor. They say, well, when my mind's made up, my mind's made up. But listen, sometimes your mind is made up and it's, it's about to do something sinful. And we need to hear a rebuke. We need to hear a correction. I'm so thankful for the times that God has sent someone into my life when I was about to do something that would be disobedient to the Lord and he has sent someone to correct me with a word of truth from his word. We all need godly people like that in our life. We all need Abigails like that in our life and we need to listen to them. And a final life lesson for us to see, it's really the main theme of this story. We don't have to fight our battles because God will fight his people's battles for them. And you know what? He already has. Abigail reminded David, David, you're going to be king. God will take care of Nabal. You don't have to do that. The Lord will fight your battles for you. And I love what she said at the end of verse 29 when she says, the lives of your enemies will be slung out of the pocket of a sling. Now, what was that a reference to? She was skillfully and subtly reminding David of the story that everyone in Israel knew, the story when little David stood in front of that big giant Goliath and he had just a sling and a stone. And she's reminding him of that, of the day that he taught all of Israel that the Lord fights our battles for us. And he had temporary amnesia about that, and he needed to be reminded. And in church, the truth is our greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already defeated the greatest enemies that we have. He has already slung them out of the sling like a stone. When he died on the cross, he defeated sin for us. He defeated Satan for us. He made a public spectacle over him. And when he rose up from the dead on the third day, he defeated death itself. And these are not abstract truths that don't apply to our lives. Jesus' victory makes all the difference in the world for those of us who belong to him because he has already fought the battle. Even though we may suffer in this life, we ultimately already have the victory. 
We're on the winning side because the Lord Jesus Christ is the champion. Listen to this truth. This is the main idea this morning. When we try to fight our own battles, we sin. But when we let God fight our battles, we win. You know, the last phrase in this story that I want to mention there is in verse 29. Right before Abigail talks about David's enemies being thrown out of the sling, she says, David, I know your life is going to be protected. Look at it. She says, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. She's using a metaphor about the way that we wrap things up to protect them in a bundle. She was saying, David, I know your life is safe. Because your life and your future is wrapped up with the living and it's wrapped up in the living God himself and so no harm is going to come to you. The day before our team uh, left uh, Ecuador, uh, we shopped in this little outdoor market there in Quito and everybody was shopping for different things. I ended up picking up a pair of sunglasses. They said Oakley on them, but I got them for like $8. So pretty sure they were Folkleys, but I, I like them and uh, brought them back home. My wife bought some black and white uh, pottery to bring home. My only concern with that uh, was how are we going to get it home uh, safely all the way back to her house? And the woman who was at this particular booth who had this pottery said in her broken English, she said, it's okay. I, I can wrap it up for you for the airplane. And she did. She took paper and she took plastic and she wrapped up all of those pieces of black and white uh, pottery. And we got all of those pieces safely home because they were all wrapped up in a bundle and they were protected. And Christian, can I just tell you something? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are all bundled up in him. You're bundled up in the bundle with the Lord of life and you are safe. You are eternally, spiritually safe. And no one can even lay one finger on you. It is not within the will of God for your life. You are eternally safe in Jesus Christ. Not just safe for the airplane ride home. Safe forever. Because through faith in Christ, we are wrapped up in the bundle with God himself. Friend, if you're not sure today that you're in that bundle, if you're not sure today that you have that relationship with the Lord, that you know Jesus in a personal way, at the end of the service, I want to give you an opportunity to trust in him as your Savior. But right now, I want to invite all of you who know that you know the Lord, you know that you are wrapped up in that bundle with the Lord Jesus. And I want to invite you right now to come to the Lord's table. Well, we remember that it was at the cross that our Lord fought our battles for us and won the victory. 